I'm a little bit nervous because you Sunday morning people are a little kind of foreign to me, and I thought about it, and I said, you know what? I have 15 pages of notes, so maybe you guys should be nervous because... <laughs> but I, I said to Pastor Mark last night, I said, any advice for the Sunday morning crowd? And he said, no, just relax, take your time, use the full two hours, whatever it takes, and... Uh, <laughs> So uh, I'm glad to know I've got that, but uh, my, my family and I were away last week. Last week We went uh, skiing in Collingwood, and I thought I'd show you a picture of myself uh, on my ski trip. No, no, that's, that's not me, no, the next one. There it is. That's, uh, they had no snow, so uh, we drank a lot of coffee and uh, did a lot of uh, window shopping, but uh, you know, it's... Uh, I'm excited to get a chance to share with you guys. It's, uh, it's something that I enjoy doing, and I really enjoy just sharing with you what I've been learning alongside your youth. Um, most of what I share with you uh, when I do come up here on a Sunday morning is just kind of putting together what the youth and I have been journeying through, if you will. And, I, and sometimes, if I'm honest, you know, it's a struggle to figure out what I'm going to say uh, to the youth every single week. And sometimes it's, it's a bit, I'm, I feel like I'm just working. I'm just trying to figure out what I should be telling them and how should I tell them and things like that. And then there's other times. There's other times where I, I feel the Holy Spirit directing me so strongly and it's just exciting and it's, it feels like a collaboration. It feels like we're putting something together. And uh, this past uh, Christmas season, I was doing my best to work through a series on kind of a standard Christmas uh, series, if you will. We're going through Advent and uh, I just kept getting drawn to a certain concept and a a certain uh, passage of Scripture that I didn't want to do because I was trying to do Christmas. And to me, Christmas means I have to talk about shepherds and and stars and that sort of idea. But I kept coming back to the concept of grace, and I kept coming back to the passage of the prodigal son or the lost son. And so throughout most of December, I kind of kept throwing bits in there, but for the most part, I was trying to kind of stay away from it. And then, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit kind of made its, its will known a little stronger to me and so this turned into a two-month uh, series on grace that we did all through January and February. So really what I'm going to share with you today is kind of, uh, it's, it's roughly three months of youth lessons. So if you're youth and you haven't been coming out, you can get caught up today. And uh, for the rest of you, it might seem like a whirlwind. But uh, uh, really what I wanted to talk to you about today is something, a message I've kind of uh, named, My Two Sons. And of course, that's named after the famous 1960s TV show. Anybody heard of it? Well, Google has informed me it's actually my three sons, so uh, whoops. But by the time I realized that, I'm fact-checking it like a few days ago, and I'm like, oh. Uh, but I, I just love the name of it, so we're going to stick with my two sons. So we're going to go from kind of my three sons to my two sons and just leave it at that. And uh, uh, the story of the prodigal son is really a story of two sons, uh, uh, one of which was a prodigal, both of which really misunderstood what grace was all about. And so I think we should start today with a, a simple definition of what grace is. And so grace, if you think of it this way, uh, grace is an amazing gift of forgiveness from God, but also relationship with God that we simply don't deserve. And so we're going to start today simply by going through the first half of the story of the prodigal son. So if you have your Bibles or if you have a device where you like to look it up, we're going to read from Luke 15. And if you need the whole passage, you know that if you're typing this in, you need the whole passage. If you just do 11 to 31, that'll cover us. We're not going to go that far, but it'll give you the entire story. It goes like this. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And a few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. 
About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, but I'm dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. And the first half of verse 20 says, So he returned home to his father. Well, it's a long passage, so let's just go through it together. Uh, As we heard here, there's a daddy that's got two boys, and uh, they're well off. They're farmers but they're not subsistence farmers. They're not growing food just to eat themselves. They're growing enough food that they're selling it at the market. They've got workers. They've got servants. They've got slaves. They've got all these people in their employ. And so they're more like estate owners than farmers. But the point is they're wealthy. And so one day the younger son, who was therefore the younger brother, says to his dad, Dad, uh, when you die, we're going to get all of your stuff, right? Like my brother and I are going to split your wealth between us. And the father responds with, of course, you're my sons. I love you very much. And that's what a father does for his children. You'll never go without. You'll always be well cared for. And this will be your inheritance. The younger son's like, that's so cool. Well, uh, I wish you were dead now because I want my money. (laughs) Now, you're probably thinking, come on, it doesn't actually say that. It does actually say that. This is not a kid asking for a loan. This isn't a kid saying, can I get a down payment? I want to buy a house. Can you co-sign for I can get a new car? Uh, Can I get some money? My friends and I want to go to Vegas. This is not asking for money. I know what it sounds like to have kids ask you for money, right? And it never starts with, Dad, I wish you were dead. Can I have 20 bucks? (laughs) It's also never 20 bucks, I've noticed. But uh, can you imagine the older brother at this point? He's sitting there listening to this. His mouth must be just hanging open. He's thinking, oh, man, he's going to get it. This kid's going to get fired out the front door. I need a snappy one-liner to say as dad heaves him out of the front door. You know, something like, uh, don't let the door hit you because it would hurt. What were you thinking? <coughs> something else, right? But he, he's, he's sitting there. He can't believe it. But the dad shockingly just looks at him and says, sure, you can have it. And just as shockingly, I think, the kid takes it. And so now in verse 13, we see one of my favorite expressions in the entire Bible. It says, he traveled to a distant land. Is that that not working for you? No? I'm a geography teacher. I love that. But to be honest, it's not because of the geography. It just shows this kid's heart. You see, here's the thing. You don't need to travel far to spend money on wild living. Hopefully, you have to leave the church property. But you don't have to travel to a distant land. This kid wanted to get away from his dad. He wanted nothing to do with his father. He wanted no part of what his dad was selling. He wanted no more life lessons from dad, no more advice, no more father-son talks, no more rules. He didn't want to bump into his dad at the marketplace. He didn't want to get those disapproving glares from his dad's friends. He wanted out. And so as we find out, uh, a few days later, he packs up and he's gone. And I think, you know, I think for ourselves, we all have kind of a distant land if you think about it. It's that place where we go when we're not focused on God. It's that sin in in our lives that tend to drag us away when we're not focused on God. You know, maybe it's something like selfishness or greed or lust or disobedience. Or maybe maybe for you, as I would say in my case, I can be more precise with my answer. I'm going to say something like, you know, I struggle with giving to others even when I can. Or I might struggle with making time for people in my life, even my family. Or I struggle with knowing when to turn off the browser on my computer, even when I know I should. 
It doesn't matter what the distant land is, but we all have a tendency to drag ourselves away from God if God's not our focus. And let me put it to you this way. Uh, where would it be, where would you be today if not for God? Because that's your distant land. Because I think it's important that we realize there's consequences for our sins and there's consequences for all of our actions. And it's hard because we all have a sense that we want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And because of that, we don't look at our actions big picture. We don't often think to ourselves day in, day out, things like, you know, why, why did God make me? What am I here for? What does God want for me? How do I live a life that's fulfilling what God has planned for me? And so even if we go back to the book of Genesis, we see Adam and Eve questioning God and breaking God's law and then getting in deeper. Now they're lying about it. Now they're blaming each other. And there were consequences. And what must be just one of the craziest or bravest things that anyone's ever said to God when God looks at Adam and says, why did you do this? Adam looks right back at God and he says, well, she was your idea. Send, send your angry letters to Moses, care of Genesis 3.12. There's, there's consequences, and the consequences are clear to us. In Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think so many people read whichever half of this verse that fits them at the time, and I think they miss the point. This isn't a threat. It's not even a warning. It's an explanation as to why Jesus made the sacrifice that he did. Because the beautiful thing about it is, yes, there are consequences to sin, but even better, Jesus and his sacrifice has taken those consequences for us. So for all of us who have done things that we shouldn't have done, and that is all of us who have sinned against God, we may not understand that we can be forgiven, but that's what grace is all about. But that's not all that grace is about. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to Luke 15 for a minute. So the first part of the story is the son, his intentional separation from his dad, rejecting his father and turning to a sinful life in a distant land. But not shockingly, in verse 14, it all comes down. The younger, the younger son burns through all of his money. His inheritance that he so desperately wanted is gone. And that at the exact same time, there's a great famine in the land, and he finds himself poor and alone. All of his party friends have disappeared, probably the minute his money disappeared. And he finds himself on the verge of starvation. He's able to find a job. But what he makes feeding these pigs isn't enough to even feed him as well as the pigs are being fed. And so then he has this thought. And I bet you anything he rejected this the first time he thought it. The first time it pops in his head, he just would have pushed it aside. But he has this thought. He says, even the lowest man in my father's employ lives better, eats better than this. I'm going to go home and I'm going to beg to be one of my father's servants, one of his slaves in the field. And such a strong statement of true repentance he does not expect to return home, rejoin his family, say, listen, lesson learned, my bad, what's for dinner? He has a true understanding of what he's done. He knows that he's wrong. He knows that he's sinned. He's going to apologize for it, but he expects nothing in return. And then the story takes this radical turn. And in verse, the second half of verse 20 says this, And when he was still a long way off, the father saw him coming. And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. I love this bit. The son does not know it, but the father's been longing for his son's return since the minute he walked away. Every day, his eyes would scan the road coming into the estate, wondering if he might come home. And this afternoon, he glances up, probably as he does, has done a thousand times before, and this time he sees a figure of a man coming towards the house. And it says, and the order here is important, he's filled with love and compassion, and then he begins to run down the laneway. 
And I don't know, I don't know about you guys, I love looking at the, the origins. I know David does too. I love looking at the origins of the English words we see in our Bible. They're so rich, they're so interesting. And so I, I even have kind of little sayings I like to use. So I like to tell people, you know, let's take a peek at the Greek or let's get a view of the Hebrew. Um, but I, I have nothing for Aramaic. So if any of you can think of something for Aramaic, I would appreciate it. Uh, I know that uh, Mark reminded me today that I'm lucky that there's no language written in the Bible called orange, because then I'd be out of luck. So, excuse me. But here's what the, here's what, let's look at the word run for a second. And the word is actually treko. You want to say that with me? Treko. There, you all came and spoke some Greek today. Good. And there's actually two halves to the meaning. There's two halves to it. The first one is it's like an athlete competing in the ancient Greek games, which we would now call the Olympics. So this is not somebody out for a morning jog. This is not somebody on the treadmill in the basement trying to learn, lose a few calories. Uh, this is someone who has been training and is actually competing at the highest level. And the second half of the definition would mean a running race that would have been held in a stadium. So this is no marathon. This is not a race where you need to measure yourself and make sure you save enough for the end. This is a full-born sprint. And so you just picture, here's this old man running down the driveway as fast as he can because he's got love and compassion in his heart. He's recognized that that was his son, and he forgets the pain and the hurt of being rejected. But he was hurt. Don't think the father for a minute just was glib about this. The father was hurt when that boy left, but he's forgotten about it. He's, he's so filled with love and grace, he just kind of returns to it. Can you picture, on the one side, there's the, there's the son, and he's rehearsing his speech. He's got the speech that he came up with in the, in the pig pen, and he's still working on it. He's walking along saying, Father, I've sinned against you and against, uh, and, and against heaven, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And he's rehearsing his speech. I don't know if you ever do that. You ever done that? I, I think of a, a TV show from the 70s called Faulty Towers, if you're a BBC fan. And uh, the, the Basil Faulty is the name of the man who runs this hotel. And so he's, he's always confused and making mistakes. And he's just told a whole bunch of his guests they have to leave. He's upset with them. He, he, the reason he's upset isn't true, but he's all upset with them. He's just told this whole group of people, pack your stuff and get out. And he's walking downstairs all proud of himself. And he fires one of his employees on the stairwell too for good measure. And he goes to brag to his wife about what he's done. He says, I've kicked them all out. They're all leaving. I've had enough. And then she explains what really happened, and he realizes, oh, I was wrong. That was a terrible mistake. And so he says, what do I tell these people? What do I say to these people? And she says, just say this. I'm so sorry I've made a terrible mistake. That's good. Yeah. I'm so sorry I've made a terrible mistake. I'm so sorry I made a terrible mistake. And he starts running through the hotel. I'm so sorry I've made a terrible mistake. I'm so sorry I've made a terrible mistake. And he bursts into the room, and he says to them, I'm so sorry my wife has made a terrible mistake. That's not this kid, though. This kid's not looking for excuses. This kid is repentant. He knows. And so on this side, you have the kid dragging himself. He's on the verge of starvation, dragging himself up that laneway. And the other side, this old man sprinting with his robes billowing out behind him. And we have this meeting. And for the father, this is not a stiff and awkward meeting. This is, this is him embracing his son sweeping him off his feet almost and hugging him and kissing him. And he's so glad to be home. But I really believe for the son, this is a stiff and awkward meeting. Because as soon as he gets a chance to speak, what does he do? Verse 21 tells us, And the son said to the father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. He's doing his rehearsed speech. He means it. He's repentant. But the father doesn't want to hear it. 
And, and, and uh, if we look in verse 22 and 23, it says, But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. The, and then kill the calf. We have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. And I'll be honest with you, when I look at this piece of scripture right here, my favorite word is but. Oh, you guys are so mature. At youth, that kills. I just stand up here and say, I love the word but, and there's giggling for 10 minutes. But I love this word but, because the word but is a conjunction. And I know what you're thinking. A Bible lesson, a Greek lesson, a grammar lesson, what a great day. And, uh, and there's more, but uh, the word, a, a conjunction is a word that links two things. It links what you've just heard to what you're just about to hear. And it may seem like a minor thing, but if that word is and, it's such a different piece of scripture. But it's not. It's a conjunction. It's saying that the father heard what just happened, the son's confession, but he's got his own agenda. He's got his own plan. And so he says to him, uh, he, he doesn't respond. He doesn't say, you are forgiven. He doesn't say, that's a great idea. He doesn't listen to the whole speech even. We know there's more. We know that he hasn't even got to the second half. Instead, he yells out to his servant, quick, bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him, grab a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And when we read that, we kind of think to our, you know, it's, it sounds like a strange list of things to do. Not quite as strange as bringing out a newborn baby, frankincense and myrrh, but it's pretty strange. And it sounds like it's all about comfort. You know, get him a new robe because the one he's wearing must be rags by now. Get him some sandals because if he was wearing shoes, they've probably worn to the point where they're no longer comfortable or usable. Kill the fattened calf because he needs to eat. But that's actually not what they're about. You know, the best robe with something would have been the most expensive thing this family owned. It would have been reserved for the father and it would have been reserved for very special occasions. He wouldn't have just worn it whenever. It wouldn't even been something he wore into temple. This would have been for weddings and for when he held feasts at his home. And he wouldn't wear it any other time. It was the most valuable thing, and it would represent an honor. Only the father would wear that robe that he has just given to his son. And the ring on his finger is not about jewelry. It's not about looking good. It's, it was a symbol of power and wealth for that family. You see, the ring would have had an emblem or a standard on it that was that family's emblem. And so that would be a lot like having a notarized signature. It would be used as a stamp, either in wax or with ink. That was, the, that was the decision of the family. If you went to the market and you struck a deal, that's how you would sign the deal. If you were asked to go to court to be a witness, you would be required to leave your symbol there as proof that you had spoken the truth. The, uh, the sandals represented freedom, because only free men wore sandals. Slaves in the field, servants in the house, they didn't wear any footwear. Only a free man, only a man of means would have any sort of shoe. And the fattened calf was reserved for the specialist of occasions. This one was probably reserved for the older brother's wedding. And so they would, they would fatten a calf, they would give it the best food, and they would take care of it really well so that when they had a feast, they would have excellent food to serve. And so you see what the father is doing is he's distinguishing between a son and a servant. Because this boy has come home happy with the thought of being a servant. And before he can even finish his speech, the father's clearly said, you're not a servant, you're a son. And then he calls for a celebration, the last verse we'll look at in this section. For a son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. And the father's expressing his joy in such strong language here, dead, life, lost and found. You see, to the father, he didn't know. The sons lived all of this. The father doesn't know. The father saw him leave, and the father saw him return years later. He didn't receive, you know, he couldn't go on his kid's Facebook page to see what he's up to. He couldn't receive text messages and emails or postcards. 
He had no idea if his son was dead or alive. He had no idea if his son wanted to return home or had no interest anymore. And so he's using this language. He was dead. He was lost. But he's alive and he's found. And so, you know, when we look at our father, God our father, he's already, always, constantly showing us abundant mercy. The son deserves nothing. But the father heaps upon him the symbols of sonship. It's not due to merit, but to mercy, but to grace. Because God does not forgive begrudgingly. Um, He's not stuck because of his own promise. He didn't think to himself, why did I write John 3.16? Why did I say the whole world? Why didn't I kind of put in a proviso there so I didn't have to deal with some of these people? That's not how God operates, because it's really not about who we are. That's how we operate. And the sin is about us, but the forgiveness and the grace is all about God. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you've done so that no one can boast about it. I think we really have to understand. I want to read part of that again because if you don't understand it, this is just information. It's that grace is what you receive from God when you believed. And you can't take credit for it because it's a gift, not a reward. And God wants to give you forgiveness and a relationship with him as a gift. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do or there's nothing you can stop do to make you worthy without the grace of God. And because it's all about God's free gift, we see that no one can boast, no one can take credit for it, no one can act more self-righteous or more righteous than anybody else because it's all about God. To God, there's no measure of, of how sinful you were. I was really sinful. I wasn't nearly as bad as that guy. It doesn't matter. It all requires grace. I just wanted to share with you, it's a short little video clip about a, a young man named Mike who, uh, who basically had kind of his own personal prodigal son story, if you will. So I don't know if we can. I, got, I just got really frustrated with school. Um, I, I, felt, I felt so much pressure with my dad um, wanting me to do well in school. And I was, I've never been natural at school. I, I've never made great grades. So my dad was at a uh, meeting at my school with my teachers and found out that I'd been lying about all my schoolwork, saying that I'd been getting it all done. And there was a, a project that I just, I just didn't do, and he found out about that because I told him I did do it. And while they were gone, I just uh, was at that point where I just had to, like, I realized that I just had to go because I was afraid of him coming home and, and, and yelling at me. I was afraid of what was going to happen. Well, Judy and I got home about um, 7.30, I guess, and my car was gone, which was odd because Mike didn't have a driver's license. He had a learner's permit. So I called a friend of his, and I got him on the phone, and he told me that Mike had actually talked about running away. So I was at this period in my life where, where I, I was really questioning God's existence just because of all the, all the stresses that I felt like he was putting me through. So. As I, as I was going out there, I, the whole time, I was just praying that God would reveal himself to me, whether that be in, in, a, in a car accident or whether I got pulled over. And it was really scary and depressing. And we wanted to just be able to say to Mike, it's okay, just come home. We called the principal of his high school and he talked to some of Mike's friends. They thought that he was going to New York City so it was a pretty devastating day for the family. We had friends coming over to pray with us, and uh, David Thompson actually talked to me, and he said, he asked if I wanted to go to New York. I was like, well, I know I gotta do something. So I got to, I got to New York the next morning, 
I got out of my car and I was walking around and I, I found myself in Times Square and it was about it was about 10 o'clock and I, uh, I walked around the whole day and I that whole day I was still, I was still just praying that uh, God would show Himself to me. I was I brought my Bible. I was reading that. So we drove into New York, and it's like midnight, 11:45, and so we split up on two different sides of the street and. Um, as we're walking and getting closer and closer to Times Square, there's more and more people and there's there's crowds. So I'm stopping on my side and looking, you know, through the faces of the crowd. And I think David's doing that on his side. And I just felt like there is really no hope that um, we're going to find him. Around midnight, I, I was hungry, so so I went to I went to the McDonald's in Times Square. I got some food and I sat down. And while I was eating it, I was I, I stayed there for quite a while because I was I was trying to figure out where I was gonna go. And uh, as I was eating, I see uh, I see David Thompson walk in through the doors of the McDonald's, and he just he just looks at me and, and just he breaks down, and and he comes over and hugs me. And he, he he's saying, "Oh, Mike." And right about then, my phone rang and it was David. And um, I answered, and he said, I'm with him. We're sitting in McDonald's across the street. That whole day, I had been um, thinking about the story of the prodigal son. And so I took his Bible from him there in the McDonald's, and I turned to Luke 15, and I told him, Mike, this is what I've been thinking about all day. And I was just trying to tell Mike that all that mattered was that it we were together again. So thinking back to that moment where my where my dad walked through that door and I and I saw how much he how much he cared about me and and that he forgave me. That gives me a great picture of, of how much God cares about me and how how he how much he forgives. And and I know that whatever I do that he still has forgiveness for me and that I can just rest in that. You know, if, if I ask people, what's the greatest gift that God gives you? Uh, I think I get a lot of answers. Forgiveness, salvation, uh, maybe for you, wisdom, not for me clearly, but uh, blessings. A great community of believers, you know, the fact that you're all here together uh, is an absolute gift from God. But uh, I would argue the greatest gift from God is God, that uh, we can have communion and relationship with God. Jesus is the greatest gift we can receive, and I think that we need to understand that as filled with grace as the Father was in this story, our Heavenly Father has more. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we see in the video there that God simply doesn't wait for us to kind of turn our lives around and come back to Him. Instead, He actually pursues us. And this, the son, you know, in the story refers home wanting to do what? Wanting to be a slave, wanting to be a worker, the lowest guy on the staff just so he can survive, just so he can eat. And what does God say? Does God say, listen, all right, grab a shovel, head out to the backfield, Try to stay out of my way, and I'll try to forget what a disappointment you are. He doesn't say that. He says, no, grab the best robe. Go get the golden ring and the sandals for his feet. My son is home. My daughter is home. You know, God tells us each, uh, you know, you're not a slave. You're not going to work for your place in this family. You're not going to earn it. It's yours by the very nature of our relationship, the very nature of who you are to me, that you're, you're my child. 
Uh, three times in the New Testament, we see the word Abba used to refer to God the Father. And Abba is actually an Aramaic word, so no catchphrase for you. But the word, the word uh, refers to an actual father, not a title. So it's, you wouldn't say happy Abba Day on Father's Day. That'd be a different word. In fact, there's, there's 20 or 30 different words that they could use for father in relation to God in the Bible. Um, one of them, for example, is the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. How does that start? Our Father, right? Our Father who art in heaven. The word for father there is a vinyu shibashamayim. You guys want to say that one or we'll let that one go? A vinyu shibashamayim. That means a powerful, mighty father, a father who is in total control of his family. That's not the word that Paul that, that Paul's using here, and it's not the word that we're, we're drawn to three times. The first time, the, one of the times it's used is by Jesus himself on the cross. When he calls out to his father, he says, Abba, Father. And it's, it's an interesting thing because the, the, Jesus in that case and Paul, as he wrote in those other two instances, there's lots of Greek words they could have used, but they chose to use this Aramaic word. And that's why it looks strange in your Bible. It always is, says, Abba, Father, because he would have been writing it in Greek. In the middle of his Greek writing, he would have stuck this Aramaic word because it was the perfect expression. And what it means is a personal father, a dad. This is not something you would use in a formal setting at all. And you think about it, um, you know, if, if there's nothing, you know, if there's nothing in my life that I've struggled more with than this. This idea that God accepts me, you know. From, from when I became a follower of Jesus uh, when I was 18, I never doubted that God had saved me. God had forgiven me and God had saved me. But I always felt like I was a disappointment because I couldn't meet the standard that I set for myself, not that God set for me. And like God, and, and there's, you know, I just, I just felt like God saw me as a, didn't see me as a son, but he saw me as that, as how I felt walking up that laneway. I didn't see God's perspective of me. I didn't see God sprinting to meet me. I felt like that kid practicing that speech, walking up that laneway time after time. You know, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy. And I never really understood how God saw me. And it was by reading that God sees me as a son, not as a slave, not as a mistake, not as a screw-up, that I understood that my relationship with him was father to son, that he had been the father all along, but I was acting like that kid walking up the driveway. And I thought, if I work hard enough, if I do enough things right, then maybe, just maybe, he'll call me son and I can call him dad. And what I really didn't understand was grace was more than forgiveness, it's relationship. You know, I knew it, but I didn't know it. But it was when I read what Paul wrote in Galatians, where he said that God has put the Holy Spirit in us, and the Holy Spirit will cause me to cry out, Abba, Father. There's another use of that word. And because it was not until I allowed the Holy Spirit to start making changes in my life that I started to really understand how God saw me. I'd read verses that said, you know, you're God's masterpiece, and I'd go, okay, and I'd flip the next page, and i keep reading it. never meant anything to me until I understood this relationship. You know, I've been a follower of Jesus for 26 years now, and it took me 19 years to figure this out. For 19 years, I misunderstood how God saw me. I saw myself as that disappointed kid walking up, walking up the laneway. I screwed up again. He must be so angry. He screwed up again. He must be so disappointed. And, you know, that, that understanding that happened just seven years ago, uh, it's changed everything for me. It changes my mindset. You think about it, uh, you go from being you don't want to sin because dad might catch you to you don't want to screw up because you don't want to hurt your dad. 
and it just changes your whole way of seeing it. And God is not looking for slaves and servants. He's not looking for people to follow his rules because he told you to follow the rules. That's not who we are. Who we are, we can see in Galatians 4, 6, and 7. And because we are the children God has sent, sorry, because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son, that's the Holy Spirit, into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. You get the inheritance on top of it. You know, we're his children. We're his sons, his daughters. Are there rules? Sure. They're there to protect us. But what we need to understand is that God's grace is above all. And as Easter approaches, many of us will take the time to think about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's right that we would do that. But I would add something to that. I would suggest that we also include the question of why. Why would God do that for us? Why would God respond in this way where he would allow his son to take that penalty for us? I think the answer is in Romans 2.4. It says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? If I'm walking up that driveway, repentant as I should be, and I, feel, I know, I just feel like God's going to just reject me and be unhappy with me, I don't even want to walk up the driveway. But it's God's love and kindness that brings us to him and brings us to a point of repentance. And all of this kindness, all of God's love, all of this grace is meant to lead you to repentance so that you can run to God and run to his forgiveness and run to a relationship with him and run to a full, fulfilled life with God because that's what grace leads us to. Because in the end, God is really just asking us a series of questions. God's asking you, do you want to come home from the distant land? Do you want me in your life? Do you want me to forgive you? Do you want me as your father? Do you want my spirit living with you and within you? And do you want a full and fulfilled life that only I can give? Because as we read in Romans true, grace leads us to repentance, but it's a choice we're offered. Now, we began today uh, with, uh, with a definition of grace. And we said grace is an amazing gift of forgiveness from God and relationship with God we simply do not deserve. And we've talked about how it's a gift, and we've talked about how we don't deserve it. We've also talked about how we can be forgiven because of God's grace. And I think we've also talked about the idea of relationship. And I guess really that just leaves one thing for us to finish, and that's whether or not we believe that it's amazing. And you know what? It's, uh, we're, we're, uh, it's getting late, so I think I'm going to call that homework. You've got five days until Good Friday. Spend some time thinking about that. Is this an amazing gift, or is this a gift I'm just happy to read about and flip the page? Can I pray for you guys before we go? Lord, just uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for just this fellowship of believers, Lord, for your word and for your grace. That is such an amazing thing that you would make such a sacrifice and your son would make such a sacrifice for us. And, and Lord, not to, not to understand how you see us and not to understand the full power of your grace is, is just insulting to the cross. And Lord, I just want to be so thankful that, that this decision was made. We read about it in Genesis that this is going to happen. And Lord, we just have our whole lives where we can spend time focusing on you and focusing on this gift you've given us. And I just want to be so thankful for that. And as we start into Holy Week and we, and we head towards the, the morning and the celebration of your death and resurrection, Lord, I just want to spend time thinking about what it is you've done for me and how that should affect my life. I'm just so thankful for that, Jesus. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.